Hello you guys and welcome to season 1 episode 7 of Milky Tea Kids the podcast. I trust you've all been well and staying safe but without making this intro super long because I have a feeling this episode is going to be a longer one. I just want to thank you all for the reception after I uploaded episode 6 aka part 1 which I called the case of Rubus Dienkamp. You guys are so sweet. I was not expecting that many people to listen to it or be into it and honestly it just made me so happy to see that even those of you who aren't into true crime still gave it a chance and still loved the episode. I was so nervous to post it though because Although I love that sort of content, I hadn't ever tried to cover a case in a recording before and I wanted to have all my facts straight, all my ducks in a row whilst still maintaining respect for everyone involved. But I'm really proud of it and I hope you enjoy this one just as much. Today's episode is part two of the case of Rivas Dienkamp and Oscar Pistorius. If you haven't listened to part one, I would suggest that you give that a listen before you jump into this one because it's going to make absolutely no sense otherwise. I'll be referring a lot to part one as well as like the events leading up to the incident all throughout this episode. So you do need a basis to understand what I'm on about. Plus I gave some really important context last episode and you probably just want to have that in your mind before we get stuck right into what happens next and I would advise that you quickly just google images of the floor plan of Oscar's house specifically his room so you can get a visual understanding of the layout because describing it is a little tricky and I will be referencing it quite a bit in today's episode. We left off just after the shooting just to recap, Rivas Dienkamp had spent the night of the 13th of February 2013 at her boyfriend Oscar Pistorius' home in Pretoria. During the early hours of the 14th, Oscar shoots four times into his bathroom. Three of those shots hit Riva and she dies. There was no doubt surrounding who killed Riva because Oscar was admitting to being the shooter from the get-go because he claimed he shot in self-defense, believing there to have been an intruder in his house. Initially, the public was on Oscar's side with that story and it was almost like, we live in South Africa, we get it. It was just an extremely unfortunate and sad tragic accident that happened why would he lie he loved her this was just the worst thing that could have happened and he obviously didn't mean to shoot her a bail hearing was held five days after the killing on the 19th of february which was basically to determine whether or not oscar was eligible for bail and what bail is is money paid to the court or to the police that allows the accused to go home until their trial starts. I know that may seem obvious, but not everyone will know exactly what it is and what goes into it. The accused is basically granted freedom and doesn't have to sit in jail awaiting trial on the condition that they have to attend all their court appearances and follow the necessary steps in a criminal investigation. The courts basically want a guarantee that this person is not going to be a problem and will fully cooperate with police. What do I mean by it's not going to be a problem? Two things. 
A, this person isn't a danger to themselves or to others. And B, they are not a flight risk. Usually the more severe, violent, depraved a crime is, the higher the bail amount will be. So a bail hearing is when the accused makes a court appearance in front of a judge where the bail amount is determined and the judge can either grant or deny bail. And the accused will also tell their story, give a statement in front of the judge. Pistorius was not determined to be a flight risk by the judge, but his bail was set at a million rand, which he paid, and he simply went back to training and competing whilst awaiting trial. The trial eventually began on the 3rd of March 2014, where Pistorius was charged with one count of murder and a firearms charge associated with it, as well as two other unrelated gun charges. He pleads not guilty to everything. All trials that take place in democratic South Africa are bench trials, which is where a single judge is assigned to a case and this judge decides everything, as opposed to jury trials that you hear of in American or UK cases. We have a bench system and in this case, Judge Masipa was the presiding judge. She personally chose two assessors to help her evaluate and eventually come to a verdict. Before we get into the arguments of the defense versus the prosecution, these are the events of that night according to Pistorius. He said that the two of them, Reva and himself, had dinner that Reva had cooked on the 13th of February at about 7pm. Then they watched some TV and then headed up to bed between 9 and 10pm. He said he walked behind Reva into the bedroom, locked the door, put his cricket bat in such a position that if the door were to be forced open, the bat would prevent that as like his lock mechanism wasn't that strong in the door you see Oscar Pistorius had a terrible fear of being robbed or attacked in his home as I'm sure we all do but his disability definitely amplified this so he was hyper conscious about security However, the alarm system in the house didn't have any door monitors and he said that there were troubles with this alarm. So it wasn't very reliable. He said that he'd taken his prosthetics off once he'd reached the bedroom to sleep, obviously. But in like the early hours of the 14th, at around 3 in the morning, it was very warm in the room, which as South Africans, we can all understand it was the middle of Feb, it's hot. So he kind of rubbed his face, wake himself up a little as we all do, swung his legs out of bed so he could get up and get the fans which were outside on the balcony. Then he said he closed and locked the sliding door which was when he heard a noise coming from the bathroom and at no point did he assume that Reva could be the one in there. It was at that point that I was just overcome with fear and I started screaming and shouting for the burglar or the intruders to get out of my house. I shouted for Reva to get out on the floor. I shouted for her to phone the police. I screamed at the people, the persons to get out. I slowly made my way down the passage, constantly aware that this threat to these people or persons could come at me at any time. I didn't have my legs on.
And um, just before I got to the wall of the, like where the tiles start in the bathroom, I stopped shouting because I was worried that if I shout, the person would know exactly where I was. I put my head around the corner that I could get shot. Um, just before I got to the, just before I got to the passage of the, of the bathroom, I heard a door slam, which could have only been the toilet door. I couldn't see into the bathroom at this point, but I could hear the door slam. And for me, it confirmed that there was a person or people inside the toilet or inside the bathroom at that time. Pistorius didn't reach for his prosthetic legs that were within arm's reach, but he did get his gun and then made his way to the bathroom on his stumps, shouting for Reva to call the police. She didn't answer him or, like, say anything back, which made sense to him because if there was an intruder, of course, she'd want to stay as quiet as possible. He shot four times in quick succession into the bathroom and went back into the bedroom, surprised at the fact that Reva wasn't there. So he quickly scoped the room looking for her because she was probably still hiding, but he didn't find her. Only then does it click that she might have been the one in the bathroom and he cries out for her. As I slowly peered into the bathroom, I could see that the window was open saw that there wasn't anybody around the corner waiting to attack me. I retreated a little bit, maybe a step or two back, still with my hand against the walls. I slid my back and my shoulder um, to help me balance. At this point, I started screaming again for Reva to phone the police. Um, I wasn't sure where to point the firearm. I had it pointed at the toilet, but my eyes were going between the window and the toilet. I stood there for some time. Not sure how long. I wasn't sure if somebody was going to come out of the toilet to attack me. I wasn't sure if someone was going to come up the ladder and point a firearm in the house and start shooting. Um, so I just stayed where I was and I kept on screaming and um, and then I heard a noise from inside the toilet um, what I perceived to be somebody coming out of the toilet before I knew it I'd fired four shots at the door my ears were ringing I couldn't hear anything so I shouted, I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. I was still scared to retreat because I wasn't sure if there was somebody on the ladder. I wasn't sure if the, there was somebody in the toilet. I don't know. Um, I don't know how long I, sta I stood there for. I shouted for Reva. At some point I decided to to walk back to the room because I couldn't hear anything. My ears were ringing. I couldn't hear if there was a response or not. I didn't have the phone on me. I walked 
with my hand out uh, on the left hand cupboards with my pistol still, still raised. I kept on shouting for Reva. Um, I didn't hear anything. That was when he put his legs on and managed to hit the bathroom door down with the cricket bat that he like placed behind the door after he'd unsuccessfully tried to kick it down with his prosthetics. So he manages to break a bit of wood or plank off of the door and then he reaches in and unlocks the door. That's when he sees Reva lying on the floor bleeding. And I sat over Reva and I cried. And um, I don't know, I don't know how long... <coughs> I don't know how long I was there for. <laughs> she wasn't breathing. We'll take an adjournment. <laughs> At this point, Oscar doesn't immediately call an ambulance or the police. His call log here is very interesting because the first person he calls is his estate manager, and then for an ambulance at about 20 past 3 in the morning. Then he calls his friend Justin DeVaris at 3.55am, who we briefly touched on in the last episode, and then his older brother Carl at 1 minute past 4. He then picked Reva up off of the bathroom floor and carried her down the stairs, leaving a trail of blood. When emergency services arrived, the first thing Pistorius tells them is, I shot her, I thought she was a burglar, I shot her. The paramedic later said that, Pastorius was literally standing there praying that she lived. Unfortunately though, Reva had no pulse by the time emergency services arrived and it was obvious that she was gone. Pastorius said Reva had already died whilst I was holding her before the ambulance arrived so I knew there was nothing they could do for her. Reva had three bullet wounds, one in the hip area, one in her right arm, and the last one in the right side of her head. The bullets had gone into her brain. According to the paramedic, each one of these wounds would have been fatal in isolation just due to how much blood she'd lost. There was blood absolutely everywhere. Her right arm was broken and she had multiple fractures as well. It's widely believed that she was standing near the toilet facing the closed door when the first shot hit her in the hip and then as she fell back onto a magazine holder, the third hit her in the arm and then the final one hit her in the head, which meant that she probably didn't breathe more than a few times after this one. As we established in part one, no one initially doubted the story. Why would anyone question it? However, significant details emerged from the police investigation that started to raise suspicion. So let's unpack why public opinion began to change. The prosecution's job was to prove that Oscar knew that it was Reva in the bathroom and that he intentionally, knowingly shot her. In this case, the prosecutor was Gerinal. Geri? I hate how that sounds. Gerinal. Um, and if you're familiar with South African true crime, this case 
wasn't the first you were hearing of Gerinal. He prosecuted a number of high-profile cases and he's so ruthless and brilliant at his job that he's actually nicknamed Bulldog. But anyway, this was a case of homicide versus culpable homicide, which is basically murder versus manslaughter. Homicide is murder and it basically means that the murderer knows that their actions will result in death, whereas in a culpable homicide case, the intention is to cause enough injury to cause death, but death isn't guaranteed or foreseen by the murderer. Very similar terms with some slight nuances, but what this meant was that it was established that A, Pistorius had been the one to shoot and kill Riva, and B, he intended to kill whoever was behind the door, whether he believed that to be his girlfriend or an intruder. I mean, if you're going to shoot four times through a locked door in a very small space, you are going to do some sort of damage. And if you followed this case, you heard the Latin term dolus eventualis a lot. And that's basically what it means. It's if a person foresaw the possibility of their actions resulting in the death of someone else, but continued regardless, basically recklessness. The prosecution's case rested almost entirely on circumstantial evidence, which is basically evidence that suggests a connection to a crime and doesn't necessarily directly or explicitly show that something happened. And it can be very challenging to win cases when a lot of your evidence is circumstantial because it's not drawn from an obvious direct observation. I'd say the majority of murder cases I've looked into do involve circumstantial evidence in order to argue between your first degrees, your second degrees, etc. So because of this, it's required of the prosecution to prove that their version of events is the only version of events that could possibly be true. Let's look at the biggest pieces of evidence in this case. There is a lot of evidence, but let's start with the food. So remember, Oscar stated that they'd had dinner at around 7 p.m. Reva cooked chicken strips and a vegetable stir fry around that time. The pathologist who conducted the postmortem or autopsy told the court that the vegetable matter found in Reva's stomach suggested she'd eaten within two hours or less of her death. And it's highly unlikely that she would have woken up and gone downstairs to eat in the middle of the night. So this wasn't consistent with Pistorius's version of events where he claimed that they'd eaten at 7 and then gone to bed between 9 and 10 p.m. when she died between 3 and 4 in the morning. So the food in her stomach suggests that she ate at about 1 a.m., which is when a neighbor of Pistorius says she heard an argument, which we will come back to in a second. The next thing that stuck out to me evidence-wise was that in his recollection of events, Pistorius said that Reva asked him, can't you sleep, my baba? Which were her last words according to him. And he clearly heard her say them because he said that he responded to her question with, 
not tonight. But somehow he didn't hear her get up to go to the bathroom. And you guys, this was a big room. And Reva's side of the bed was the one closest to the balcony where Oscar would have been in order to retrieve the fans and turn them on. So she had to walk around him or around the fans that he was moving and all the way down the passage that led to the bathroom, close and lock the toilet door without him hearing anything. So either he knew she was in the bathroom and had in fact heard all of that happening or she was just extremely quiet after asking him if he couldn't sleep. I'm also not sure why he didn't make this clear earlier because the whole time it seemed like he didn't know whether or not Reva was asleep. To me this might be the most interesting and contradicting part of the entire case. Why didn't he check on Reva as he left the bedroom? How could he not know she wasn't there. We also discussed Oscar's temper in the last episode and I told you guys that his ex-girlfriends, friends and family began to notice him growing more and more arrogant and aggressive in recent years and this was no exception when it came to his relationship with Reva. At times he could be quite the controlling and jealous type according to some eyewitness accounts as well as whatsapp conversations between oscar and reva i mean i mean there was apparently an event one night where oscar i don't know what happened but oscar dragged reva out like he pulled her out by her arm and yeah i don't like that i think let's discuss some whatsapp conversations and messages between the two of them so on the 27th of jan 2013 reva messages oscar saying i'm scared of you sometimes and how you snap at me and how you will react to me she said she felt picked on and attacked by the one person she deserved protection from and these are direct quotes by the way it seemed Oscar had gone off on Reva more than once in these jealous tantrums and she was upset by them. She felt like she was trying her best to make him happy but that he didn't treat her like a lady and recalled one time where he criticized her so loudly that everyone could hear it. In another instance and set of messages, Pistorius accuses Reva of chatting to a man and touching this man's arm while ignoring him as in ignoring Oscar. The last two text messages that I'm about to read out from Reva to Oscar, probably the most alarming in my opinion, the first of which reads, dating you comes with sick people trying to fill my head with doubt and I'm learning to trust what is real and safe. And the second is, I just want to love and be loved, be happy and make someone so happy. Maybe we can't do that for each other because right now I know you aren't happy and I'm certainly very unhappy and sad. I'll tell you why I find those in particular quite concerning. The first being that Reva had obviously heard some things about Oscar and while we don't know what she heard specifically, we can assume they had something to do with his anger issues or maybe how controlling he could become and that made her trust him less and maybe question his character a little bit because she says I'm learning to trust what is real and safe and then in the other text she says maybe we can't do that for each other which suggests that she was contemplating possibly ending the relationship because they weren't making each other happy and remember they weren't together for long and things moved 
quite quickly. So in the few months they were together, it's clear that there were times when neither of them was happy. These are among other more normal, like, couple conversations where they're calling each other pet names and being loving to one another, which the defense used to further their case of this just being a terrible accident and to say that Riva and Oscar genuinely cared for each other. But apparently these two fought a lot, which isn't uncommon in relationships, obviously, at all. But when security and law enforcement have to be called to your home on multiple occasions over domestic issues like they had in this case, makes you think. Pistorius's gun obsession also came to light when one particular incident was brought up of Oscar allegedly firing his friend Darren Fresco's gun inside Tasha's, Mauro's arch, under the table and then asked his friend to take the rap for him so he wouldn't get into trouble. However, Pistorius insists that his finger was not on the trigger that day. The prosecution's intention with this was to highlight the more angry, violent, trigger-happy side of Pistorius that not many people got to see. The state or prosecution were trying to say that Pistorius got angry after a fight with Riva, which is why he killed her and why it should be a murder conviction, while the defense argued that Pistorius was scared and vulnerable on his stumps and that his state of mind while firing the gun rules out murder completely. And one of the state's most crucial pieces of evidence to prove their case of homicide and not culpable homicide was the testimony of their first witness, a neighbor of Pistorius called Michelle Berger. She said that shortly after 3 a.m. on Valentine's Day, she heard bang, 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 exactly like that, as in there was a pause between the first and second gunshots, and then the final three happened very quickly. To the prosecution, this pause between gunshots proved premeditation because it indicated that he had time to stop and reconsider. This same neighbor and her husband, Charles Johnson, testified that they were woken up by a woman's terrible screams, followed by a man shouting for help, which does correlate with Oscar's story because he said that after the shooting and the discovery of the body and everything, he runs out to the balcony and screams and shouts for help. Just one strange thing about this running onto the balcony thing is that the fan was right in front of the sliding door, so it's weird that, like, how could he have run outside in this panic and not either knocked the fan over or, like, moved it because it wasn't, it hadn't moved from where he had placed it after waking up and the room was hot and he retrieved them from the balcony, so that's a little bit confusing. But anyway, Charles Johnson called security at 3.16 a.m. and then returned to his balcony, which faced Oscar's house, when he heard gunshots. Another neighbor, Annette Stipp, said in court that she was awake when she heard three gunshots and a woman's petrified, blood-curdling screams. Her husband, Johan, says he was woken up by the sound of gunshots, at which point he got up and walked onto his balcony. The couple both said they heard the screams of a woman, three shots, and then the screaming stopped. As I said earlier, we come back to the angle of 
the argument and here's where it comes in. Another neighbor, Estelle van der Merwe, claims she woke up at around 1.56 in the morning to the sound of a woman shouting as if she was engaged in an argument. Some time later, she heard four gunshots and then complete silence. But how come the neighbors heard all of this commotion? What about the screaming and shouting they heard? Pistorius said he heard nothing and all he was saying was asking Reva to call the police and telling the intruder or intruders to get out. The prosecution claimed Reva was talking to him when he shot her and then she also screamed after being shot, which Pistorius denied. Which I find strange because he said his ears were ringing after firing so he couldn't have heard anything. How could he be so sure she didn't scream? If the digestion times of the food discussed by the pathologist we spoke about just now are true, that perfectly lines up with what Estelle claimed she heard. The prosecution said the only reasonable conclusion they could come to was that Reva was awake and in all probability eating shortly before her death. Phone records also suggest that Pistorius was up and connected to the internet for about five minutes at 1.48 in the morning. So all of the evidence I've just mentioned is pointing to them being awake at around 1 a.m. Under cross-examination though, an iPhone expert conceded that this phone activity could be due to background data and apps being used or open without the user actively using it, you know what I mean? But just while we're on the topic about the phone though, I think, I think it's worth mentioning that all of Oscar's internet history prior to the 13th of February had in fact been cleared and a lot of emphasis tends to be put on this because in a lot of premeditation cases, you hear a lot about the murderer's Google search history and that they're searching things like, I don't know, how to get rid of a body, ways to dispose of a body, or buying gloves or bleach online in the days leading up to the crime or whatever. But honestly, to me, this isn't that weird. I have this thing where I have to clear my history and not even because I feel like my searches are suspicious. It's just a mental thing. I'm very pedantic when it comes to how my phone is organized. And if I'm trying to quickly type something into Google, I just can't stand seeing searches from months ago popping up like I find it so annoying I'm the same with whatsapp if we're having a short conversation and we don't really speak outside of that once it's done it's done I'm deleting the chats there's only like two or three people whose chats I still have and keep because I talk to them every single day and I feel like the conversations are meaningful and valuable enough that I don't want to delete them. Are you the same way or do you not care? I know a lot of people who constantly have like a million tabs open and don't clear their history. They just don't care. Um, are you one of them? Let me know. Reva's phone was found in the bathroom and in one of the sources I read, I think it was an Australian one, said it was found in the bathroom with her. But I just want to clarify that Reva wasn't found or left in the bathroom. Pistorius picked her up and carried her body downstairs which is where paramedics found her 
but because her phone was found in the bathroom, the prosecution said she had fled to the toilet with her cell phone as if she'd run away from Oscar with her phone after he potentially got angry and violent after this fight that they were claiming the two of them had and then she hid in the bathroom to make an emergency phone call. So what could this argument have been about? In my mind, if it did happen, it had to have been either a normal everyday lover's quarrel that got a bit too loud and maybe wasn't even that deep initially or maybe it was something more serious to do with their relationship and I can't point fingers and say that this was solely because of Oscar's temper or his behavior nor can I blame this alleged argument on him but we can guess that it was probably something along those lines. The next day was Valentine's Day and Reva had plans to drive back to Joburg and spend it with her best friend Gina and her family. So maybe that's what started the fight. I'm not quite sure. We can only speculate at this point. Because if we're running with the prosecution's version of events that they'd just eaten and they were arguing and then when things got heated, Reva ran into the bathroom and locked the door behind her because she was afraid. Another piece of evidence that suggested this was Reva's jeans. And the prosecution really held on to this. Pistorius said he picked the jeans up from the floor, but they were found on the floor, inside out, while all of her other things were neatly folded inside her overnight bag. According to the prosecution, they were there because Reva was planning on putting them on and leaving during the fight. To me, this doesn't necessarily mean much because if we're going with Oscar's version of events, they were asleep. Why wouldn't her jeans be on the floor inside out? I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever taken my jeans off without getting them inside out. And I always leave clothes on the floor when I'm tired and about to go to bed. It's just that this piece of evidence doesn't hold too much water for me, but it is weird that he said he picked them up when he hadn't. They were found still on the floor. The next piece of evidence that we'll look at is the door, the toilet door that Pistorius shot through. It's been established that the door was locked and that Pistorius had to use force to break it down so that he could get into the bathroom. In court, Pistorius's defense lawyer, Barry Rue, asks him to remove his prosthetics in the courtroom to demonstrate the events of that night. And he's not dressed dissimilarly to what he would have been wearing that night, a t-shirt and shorts. And he goes to stand by the bathroom door that he shot through, which was one of the biggest things in this case. I mean, if you've seen clips or screenshots of this moment, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. When I say the feeling of vulnerability you got, not only from Oscar, just on his stumps in this big courtroom, in this huge case, just diminished to himself and not this star, this Paralympian that the Blade Runner, but you also felt the vulnerability while watching it. it was such a strange feeling, such a strange moment. It's kind of iconic when I think about this trial. I just picture that exact moment 
very, very strange. This was done to demonstrate how tall he would have been in comparison to the door and the gunshots. It was agreed upon by ballistics experts that it was possible Pistorius didn't have his prosthetics on because the bullet holes in the door were quite low down, but the bullet trajectory shows that he aimed at the toilet where, as we discussed earlier, Reva was most likely standing. So, so did he know exactly where to shoot? Another strange thing about the door was that the marks made by the crooked bat he used to break it were also at his height when he's on his stumps and not on his prosthesis, which is quite important in the context of Pistorius's story. That is a terrible thing to say. Pistorius's story. Whew, I'm overwhelmed just saying that. Did he or did he not have his legs on? And why not just be honest about that? His sentence changed a few times, but in 2014, Pistorius was found guilty of culpable homicide or manslaughter. He served only 10 months in prison before being released on house arrest. In December of 2015, the verdict was changed to murder. He was then sentenced to six years in prison in 2016, and then another year later, a court more than doubled this and ordered him to serve an additional 13 years in prison. So as we wrap up this case, I haven't included every single piece of evidence or every single testimony. This case was massive, and if I had included everything, we were going to be sitting here till this time next year i'm telling you but what do i think i mean you heard oscar crying and you saw his state he was in an absolute state in the clips i've inserted and and it's difficult for me not to feel sympathetic and i know i'm not alone in that you can tell that this man is describing something that was clearly extremely painful some days i'm like was this clearly a man whose ego was the size of the planet yes did he have some serious anger issues? Definitely. Did he have an unhealthy obsession with guns? 100%. But do I think he sat for a day or a week or a month planning to murder his girlfriend over some fights and was his need to control her and his jealousy so powerful that it would lead him to do something like that? I don't think so. But other days I ask myself those exact questions and my answer is the complete opposite. I feel like men go around killing women too freely and frequently in this country for me not to be skeptical of his story. And the evidence against Pistorius is pretty damning. In my opinion, it's far stronger than the evidence for. So I couldn't really give you a definitive answer, hey? It changes daily. Do I think his sentence is long enough well, I think sentences in prison in general can be quite strange things. I always try to put myself in the family shoes and even the victim's shoes. I know it sounds weird, but I always think, what if someone had murdered me or someone I loved in cold blood? I know for a fact I would never want them to walk free again. But if it was genuinely a mistake and just a tragic series of events, I'm not sure about that. But what I am sure of is that that first house arrest sentence was a joke and kind of offensive. When I first heard of it being increased to another 13, it made me feel better for Reva's family. 15 years is usually the minimum sentence for murder in South Africa. But can prison time ever make up for someone's life being taken? You tell me.
I also think it's important to say that what a judge looks for in the accused when sentencing is remorse. So I keep that in mind whenever I think of this case because to me, and it's just my opinion, but Pistorius sounds remorseful. Whether or not this was a premeditated cold-blooded murder that an angry controlling trigger-happy boyfriend planned to commit against his girlfriend. I don't know, I feel like my stance changes constantly. It's easy to feel sorry and remorseful once you get caught after the fact and no one other than Oscar Pistorius will ever know what his intentions were that morning. That brings us to the end of the case. This was quite the undertaking and although I expected it to be it exceeded those expectations there are hours upon hours of trial footage and so much evidence that it was an easy one to get lost in my entire life for the past month has been this case and it was the same when everything was happening all those years ago in real time if you listen to both parts in their entirety, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening and dipping your toe into a bit of true crime and that I made it a little easier to understand and follow along. This story really does feel like your typical Shakespearean fall from grace, just so tragic for everyone involved. I hope I did it justice. Reva truly seemed like such an angel and I hope she's at peace. God bless the dead as always. This was episode 7, meaning it's the second last episode of the season. I will be back with episode 8 by the middle of the week and although thinking about the fact that it's the last one makes me very sad, it also makes me really happy and proud. I will see you guys then, but until next time, don't miss me too much. Bye guys.